Hi everyone, welcome to the White Coat Club podcast. Um, we are Nicole, Lindsay, and Darlene from Moon Prep. Moon Prep is a college counseling service that specializes in direct medical, BSMD, and medical school admissions. So today we will be talking about the MMI, and I have Lindsay and Darlene with me as well. Hi, my name is Lindsay. I am a lead counselor at Moon Prep. And previously I worked as an SAT ACT tutor and have a lot of experience helping students with the essay writing and interview process. Hi, I'm Darlene. I'm one of the lead counselors here at Moon Prep. I have a strong research background um, from when I went to UCSD and I also have a lot of clinical experience, business experience, and I am a fourth year now in medical school. All right. Well, do you want to kick us off and describe a little bit about what the MMI tests, Darlene? MMI stands for the Multiple Mini Interview, and it's a newer interview format that a lot of medical schools are starting to adopt. So unlike the traditional interview where they ask you general questions about yourself, the MMI is designed to test your teamwork skills, communication skills, um, interpersonal and intrapersonal qualities and kind of showcase the way that you think. And so a lot of the different aspects that they are testing, it's not so much about your medical knowledge, which MMI often gets confused for. It's more about the logical process of how you're going to approach dif different situations, whether it's in everyday life or in the medical field. So why do you guys think so many schools are starting to use MMI. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why so many schools are using the MMI is probably multiple reasons, but one of them is just because there are so many different candidates who maybe on paper will look really similar. They all have similar experiences of maybe they volunteered in hospitals or shadowed or worked as an EMT, medical assistant, phlebotomist, whatever it might be. And, you know, what just because they have a lot of that clinical experience doesn't necessarily mean that they have those other kind of like soft qualities that medical schools are looking for in their physicians too. And so this is like a really great way to be able to put them almost like in real world situations, obviously like in a virtual or in-person like interview setting, but gets them to test a little bit more about who they actually are, you know, beyond what they're saying on paper. Yeah, I yeah. think one of my favorite pieces of it, of the MMI, is that it kind of tests and showcases the way that students think as well. So similar to Lindsay, what Lindsay said, you know, they have their activity sheet and their essays to highlight the great things about them. Um, this is kind of giving that other perspective. Yeah, I definitely agree. A lot of the times I feel like there's only so much you can get from like the traditional questions. And I often find that the MMI is like pretty revealing. Like, you know, I've definitely had some people in in like a hypothetical team setting, they automatically kind of go on to the defensive, right? Without taking the time to understand, you know, where the other person may be coming from, different things that might affect the way why they're doing something. And, you know, in medicine, it's all about being open-minded, right? That's kind of like one of the, the key points of MMI is maintaining an open mind, realizing that, there could be different, many different possibilities for a lot of different things that could happen. Um, why do you guys feel like MMI is so difficult for students? I have a lot of students struggle with the 
concept of how they should be answering the questions. And I think a lot of our students that I've worked with specifically want just a direct answer. They want a question, they want an answer. Um, the MMI is a little bit unique in the sense that you're kind of talking through your answer instead of just giving a direct answer. Um, I think that's why a lot of, from my experience, students struggle with really grasping how to answer that type of question. They're not necessarily ask, ask, asking asking a black and white question. You know, they're asking more of, give me the way that you would interpret this response. Yeah, the learning curve, I think, can be intimidating because usually you get like anywhere from five to eight minutes or so per station. And so, because you're kind of bouncing around from station to station and getting a new scenario, new interviewer at each place. And so, you know, whenever they see the scenario and think I have to talk about this like particular thing for like five to eight minutes, like how do I fill that time? What kind of things should I be doing? Um, that I think is like the learning curve is the hardest part. But then once, of course, they do that prep, they work with someone who understands like, you know, what you should be doing, how to kind of approach these questions. It's, it, it helps helps make it a lot easier. And I think it almost can be more like manageable than a traditional interview. Um, and I think another way the MMI can be a little bit hard is students will fall into that trap of like a formula type answer. And there definitely are kind of formulas of how you should be approaching questions, but then they fall into approach where like, you know, I'll always, you know, first kind of confront the person. Then if they, you know, don't change their behavior or, you know, have a good reason for it, then I'll automatically go to like an authority figure that's not always going to be the case in those types of situations. So, you know, not falling in the trap of just thinking, oh, this is what the interviewer wants me to say. They need to think like a little bit more critically, critically about what the prompt is actually asking and like what the repercussions of what they're saying actually would be too. Yeah, I definitely think it is more about retraining in the interview prep of the way people approach different situations or think about the question even. And I even think like one of the things that people make a huge mistake on is not taking that time to think. And they kind of just start jumping into answering the question. And, you know, as Nicole said, you're going to try to answer questions as quickly as possible, right? In a traditional interview, but MMI, they actually want you, they physically make you sit there for two minutes to think about the question. And I think people have such a hard time adjusting to that. But, you know, a lot of the students that I've done prep with, a lot of them come back and say, I'm actually so glad that they have the two minutes. And now I actually know what the two minutes is for. So I always thought that was kind of interesting. <laughs> so one of the things I've also noticed is a lot of schools kind of focus on different types of questions, right? And, you know, we all know that MMI is hard because not, not all the questions are pretty standard, you know? So for like a faculty interview, you might see like, you know, why medicine? Um, tell me about yourself. What are some of your hobbies? And for MMI, they could be asking about aliens or they can be asking about, you know, what you would do in a car crash, right? It's, it's just so variable. <laughs> Um, what have you noticed for some of the trends that you guys have been seeing this year for different schools? Yeah, some, especially like, I feel like even you could break it down even further, like BSMD versus medical school, you'll definitely encounter different types of questions. Um, and so for BSMD, what I've seen with some schools is they almost ask like Casper style questions 
where it is like those situational judgment tests where, yeah, maybe you are in a medical setting, but you know, maybe it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with medical knowledge per se, or like even like ethics of medicine per se too, um, at least on the surface level. But, you know, a lot of the times it might be like, well, how would you handle like working in a group? What would you do in a car crash? Those types of things. And so, you know, it is stuff that potentially a 17, 18 year old kid could have encountered and will have like some life experiences to, to pull from. Um, and then definitely kind of like those hybrid where, you know, they might have a station where they do ask you like, why do you want to be a doctor? Or, you know, tell me about a challenging situation you had to overcome. So at least on the BSMD side of things, you know, there's those two types of questions, kind of the more situational judgment and then, um, hybrid kind of regular interview questions. So for me, I feel like I've noticed different schools like to focus on different things. Mm -hmm. Like UMKC really likes to make sure you understand healthcare, right? And there's not a lot of schools that will ask that. There's a couple of different schools I can think of that will ask you specifically how healthcare works. Um, there's one school in particular that will ask you how insurance works, not just in the US, but in Canada. And that question still shocks me that they answer or mm -hmm. that they ask that because even medical students don't know how that works, right? And so I was like, wow, they're like really pushing students to understand the system that they're about to enter. And obviously, you know, insurance is like one of the most annoying things to work with <laughs> as a doctor. So I'm always kind of surprised, even at the BSMD level, how far they're willing to push their students, right? And, you know, I've done probably over like 50 preps this year <laughs> with students, and I haven't had a single student come to me with a good understanding of it. And so it kind of makes me wonder, like, how do people who you know, don't really go through not even like just our prep, but like different companies or don't use a service at all. How do they prepare for that? And it really would be, you have to start reading about healthcare, like from your freshman year, if you want to do BSMD, right? Not every school asks that. Um, some schools, I think, like to focus more on like, you know, can you build a rapport with someone else, right? Can you take the time to understand someone else? Um, how do you communicate in a team? And those are more common questions, but every once in a while, you'll kind of get something a little quirky or interesting. <laughs> and how would you suggest then that kids who maybe didn't go through our prep, who don't have any clue about like the Canadian healthcare system or whatever kind of question it'd be, what would you suggest that they do in those situations if they are kind of uh, encountering a question that they have like really no background knowledge on? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting because there's not like a good resource. Like I get asked this question all the time, right? And they're like, what can we read? And, you know, Dirty Medicine, which I used to study for boards on YouTube, and it really is called Dirty Medicine. I think one of my friends was like, I thought you were joking about that. <laughs> like you were calling medicine dirty. And I was like, no, that's the name of it. But um, Dirty Medicine, I think, gives a good highlight of like Medicare and Medicaid. You may be able to find some YouTube videos on like how insurance works. Uh, but really, I think it's reading, like keeping up with the news because things can change all the time, right? Um, 
just like insulin, I bring up this point like all the time. So insulin before was super unaffordable. And then since Biden came into office, I think last year he made it a policy for Medicare. He capped insulin prices at $35, right? So is it still affordable to everybody? No, but it's starting to get a little bit better. And so things change all the time. And honestly, I think med schools don't really quite care how much you know, but it's the fact that you take the time to like keep updated, right? So if you can say, you know, recently this event happened um, or, you know, right now, Right now, the big thing is like reimbursement rates are trying to get cut, right? So if you can talk about those things, um, it shows that you're trying to actively keep current with like what's happening in the news and you're actively engaging it rather than kind of just doing things like off of a checkbox. What do you think is some of the most challenging questions that people get? I think the insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, definitely one of the, the, like we just mentioned, I think that's one of the most confusing. I was doing prep with a student this year. And again, you know, I think it in lies with the topic that they're unfamiliar with, as well as the format that they're unfamiliar with. Because when I ask the question again, immediately, they don't want to use the time that they have to think. And they just want to jump in and say, yes, you know, universal healthcare is the answer. Um, How will we fix it? raise the taxes. And they really just didn't have a deeper knowledge of the interworkings of any of it. And they just want to kind of, you know, this student in particular would just wanted to kind of spit out an answer to me that he thought would be something that I wanted to hear. Um, so I think that having that understanding and like you said, reading articles and being able to reference things as well. Um, I know Lindsay asked earlier, a student is kind of stumped on a question in an interview. I always try to give students advice of see if there's anything that you can relate it back to that you have some type of knowledge about, even if you don't know that specifically, you know, maybe you read an article that referenced a piece of what the question is talking about that you can just give something to um, the interviewees. Yeah, and I think too, like another like tough question that kids get asked is the questions that have like a lot of details and like the mm-hmm might some of them are important it's just like I always compare it to like the SAT that's a test of details or the ACT a test of details and one word can kind of change how you respond to things or one phrase and kids kind of will get caught up in in a certain a certain area like for example I know there's like one like test scenario that we use that you know a kid has to get a job like a part-time job as like a medical scribe to pay for tuition and get experience and like his parents ask him to stop doing that um, and, you know, help out with the family more. And kids oftentimes get caught up in the fact that they're getting paid to do the medical scribe and don't think about kind of the biggest, bigger implications of why they're working as a medical scribe, you know, not just for the money, but also for the experience and for their future. And so even if they got paid to help with childcare, you know, they're, they're missing out on those big experiences. And so they'll fixate on like the one detail, but then forget about the other ones. And this like, you know, scenario prompt is super long. It was maybe, you know, three or four sentences at most maybe, but, but they were missing things that were really important. So it's like not necessarily looking at, at it on a more minute schedule or, you know, on a, on a more detailed plane, That's I would a say. Good point. Like I always tell students to make sure you're looking at the big picture, 
like the first question you should ask is what is the ethical problem? Because, you know, the question always ends as like, what are you going to do? How are you going to approach this? Right. And then people just start talking about it without even understanding what the problem is. And I'm like, if you don't understand what the problem is, can you really solve it? Right. And, you know, you can't, they want to, and that's the point of MMI, right? They want to see if you can understand what the issue is before you come up with solutions. So if you just take a step back and this requires like a lot of like retraining, right? It's not like, you know, why do you want to go into medicine? And let me tell you, it's trying to step back and see, okay, the overall picture is this and let's take it one step at a time. What step should I take first? And people, I think, often miss that and they just love to kind of jump to the end. Um, and, you know, MMI is all about how are you going to approach things logically? Tell us step by step, case by case, exactly what you're going to do. One of the things that I always think is so interesting is how do people prep well? Right. And there's a lot of different companies out there. I mean, obviously, we are one of them. <laughs> But a lot of people, you know, definitely hire med students, but I feel like sometimes the qualifications kind of get lost. Like if you're a med student, you automatically know how the process works. And I personally don't feel that way because like, you know, if you look at my background, I've done counseling for like over seven years. Like I've seen probably hundreds of essays or applications I've done, you know, a ton of interview prep over the course of like the last four years. And so I feel like I have a really good understanding of how the whole process works, but you know, you have, you know, these basically broke med students, right? I'm one of them and mm-hmm. you, you know, they're looking for a job and you know, what are they good at? They're good at helping other people to get into med school. Right. But they don't really have that background experience. What do you guys think about that? Yes, completely agree. Cause they know, they know what maybe, you know, they know that it worked, whatever they did to get into medical school. Cause obviously they're in medical school themselves, or even if we're going like at a, a BSMD or even a traditional level, they know what worked to get them into you. They know something worked to get them into UPenn or, you know, the case Western's BSMD program, but what worked, like what was like effective for them. Um, and so that's what, what, whenever someone's like, you know, reviewing an essay, they sent it to their friend who got into UPenn, they brought all these notes and it's like, well, you know, just because, and the parents are like giving what their opinion a little bit more, um, you know, wait, just because they are in this prestigious school or prestigious, you know, program, but ultimately they don't necessarily have that expertise. They don't see what works on a grander scale. It could have been their essays. It could have been the fact that they're you know, low income or their gender or their race or um, so many other different factors to get into, into these different programs or schools or whatever it is. And so having that, once again, kind of going back to big picture, understanding the big picture of things. And, you know, we, as Darlene said, we've read so many applications. We've worked with so many different applicants on a bigger scale. We do kind of see what, what works. And so that's, I would say, why you have to vet who you're working with a little bit more just to make sure that they are, they are qualified. I think we get that question a lot when it comes to just students that we work with in general. A lot of families will ask, you know, are all of your staff from the medical field? And we do have some, you know, Darlene is one (laughs) of those, Um, but it's not all of us 
all of our staff is not coming from the medical background. Um, we're more coming from the counseling background and having that experience with specific applications versus having that experience, having done it personally ourselves. So just like Lindsay said, it's just a different perspective. Yeah. I often like get a lot of like people who work with other companies, like, and I'll kind of ask them like, you know, who did you work with at that company? Not because of like the competition, but just trying to understand where they're at with like the application. And they'll say like, okay, I worked with another med student. Like, I mean, I have, I have a girl who has a perfect MCAT, a perfect GPA, has three publications, worked in like the ER, started, I don't know, some sort of like passion project. So I'm like, this girl is like a shoe-in, right? And then when I read the application, I'm like, this is giving me nothing. Like, I, I don't understand your purpose of being a doctor. And I was like, did you use another company? And they said, yeah. And I was like, who did you work with? And she said, you know, a med student who goes to some prestigious med school, I can't remember which one. And I was like, I mean, to put it politely, I think you should like ask for your money back because you didn't get good advice, right? And it's just so hard. And even for interview prep, like the only reason why I brought this up is because you'll get a lot of different opinions with people who are, you know, nice enough to want to help you train, right? But, you know, not all advice is good advice. And it's just kind of interesting because I'll get a lot of different answers from different people for MMI. And I'm like, why did you say it that way? And, you know, like, I think someone said, um, oh, I wouldn't be a PA because they don't get enough face time with the patient. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, who told you that? And they're like, a med student. And so I went and looked up the med student's profile and I'm like, oh, they're a second year. They haven't done clinicals yet. So they obviously don't know that nurses and PAs get way more face time than doctors. Right. And so, I mean, that's a whole other level of interviewing as well. Right. You have to be able to respect who you're working with and you can't put down different fields. And, you know, if you say things like that, it just makes you sound really ignorant. So it's just kind of interesting, the different advice that I hear other people get. And then they come to me and I'm like, no, like, don't don't ever say that again. <laughs> Um, I think a good point you bring up, I know I'm jumping ship a little bit when you talked about how you have to consider like who you're working with in these like scenarios in the MMI. That's so true because um, an example that I have of one student, like the prompt was your friend is in a Chinese like language class, but she's fluent in Chinese. The teacher like explicitly says, if you're, um, you know, if you're not in a beginner, you shouldn't be in this beginner course. And so like, what would you do? And so the girl kind of approached it as first I confront my friend, make like tell her that she needs to change. If she doesn't change, I'm going to go to the teacher and like paddle on, on my friend. But, and then after she gave her response, I like had her stop and be like, okay, is that, is that actually what you would do in real life? Because you would really throw away like a, a friendship because your friend was taking like a Chinese language course. Like ultimately it was only her, like her friend that was going to get hurt per se, because she's not challenging herself and she's not necessarily working. She's like, no, I just thought that's what like they would want to hear. And, you know, kind of the formula that I was following, she didn't really consider like what the repercussions of the relationship would be like how other people would view her. And so like, if I was interviewing someone and they seemed like they were going to be like a, 
you know, a tattletale and kind of cause a lot of problems, would that necessarily be someone I would want to be working with? I think, I think we know the answer, like not, not really. And so like, those are kind of things that you need to be thinking about. It doesn't have to be this like black and white, you know, linear fashion that we follow all the time. It will, it will change and it will be, and that's okay. What other mistakes do you feel like people make? Like, I feel like not prepping is definitely one of them. We talked about the bad advice. Um, I feel like really not practicing or just jumping to conclusions and not, and that itself requires like a lot of practice too. Mm -hmm. right? Like usually in the first session, I like pick questions where people will naturally tend to jump to a conclusion, right? Let's say even like the birth control question, which shows up quite a bit for BSMDs and med schools. Um, I always ask people like, why do you think she's on birth control? And, or why do you think she's requesting birth control? And the answer is usually like, well, she wants to have intercourse. And I'm like, does the question say that? And it's it's like funny because everyone always takes like 30 seconds to think about it. And that, it's like a two sen sentence prompt that I put in the chat. And they're like, well... I suppose not. And I'm like, exactly. So you can't assume, right? Can you imagine if you went to the doctor and they're like, let me just take a guess at, you know, why you're here, right? And they're like, you know, are you here for blood pressure? And you're like, no, my leg fell off. Like, that's not why I'm here, right? So, you know, the point is you can never make assumptions. And I feel like that's kind of the most common mistake that I see. I see that a lot too. They want to jump to conclusions. They want to, I think that they're over eager to showcase what they know and they want to just, they find something that they know. Like a lot of times, if it's a question about confidentiality and should it be breached or not, um, there's one question where, you know, man comes in and he doesn't want his job to find out that he has HIV um, or his wife and they kind of get lost in confidentiality. I can't tell anybody and they don't really think further about the rest of the prompts. You know, they mentioned that he's working at a bank. So would his job have to know it all? You know, you don't have to, I think they jump into it's confidentiality and this is what I know. And I want to showcase to the interviewers that I know this thing about, you know, being a doctor and this, that confidentiality is so important, but they kind of get lost in the details and in the what they don't know. And I think explaining to the interviewer as well, I'd be curious to know X, Y, and Z, and then I might have a different answer um, or just the details that are left out. That's so interesting that you say that because I feel like that is a hundred percent like what everyone says, right? Everyone's like, how do I stand out? And they usually think they stand out by having all this medical knowledge. And I'm like, I was like, you realize they actually don't care if you have medical knowledge or not, because that's what medical school is for, right? If you don't need medical school, you could just go to your doctor. And, but that's not really how our process works. <laughs> and so, you know, oftentimes I have to like, I'm like, I, I understand, you know, a lot, right. But like, we need to reel it back a little bit because what really makes you stand out is being compassionate, being a good person, being a good, you know, teammate. Um, one of the most interesting things that I think one of my preceptors had told me was 
you're never going to get fired as a doctor for not knowing enough because you have to know a lot, right, to even become a full-fledged doctor. But they're like, but the only reason doctors get fired is because they can't work well with other people. And I was like, that's actually so interesting. And I never thought about that, but that's so true. Like, obviously everywhere there's going to be a need for doctors, but if you're not going to work well with nurses um, or different staff, uh, or even just like different colleagues, like who are other doctors and you can't respect them, you know, why should a hospital keep you? You're actually just wasting more of their time and their money rather than doing something productive and collaborative. And these medical schools are getting thousands of applications for 100, 150 seats. Acceptance rates a lot of times are super low. And so if you are someone who doesn't have those skills, why would they take you over someone who does have like that whole package? Because it is an important part of the process. Your job is forward facing. You're with patients a lot of the times. It's an important skill to have just as much as like your clinical knowledge and your, you know, your more technical knowledge in general. So Yeah. Completely agree with what you're saying, Darlene. So after you apply and interview, do you feel like interviews are the ultimate decider for acceptances? It's a good question. I think it does vary from school to school how much weight they put on it. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I've heard one outlier, I think it was University of Illinois, Chicago, that they the admissions officers, like the dean of the program did say that like kind of the interview is, is at this point kind of what's, what's they're basing their decision on. But I think that that one is like few and far between. Uh, For the most part, they are taking a very holistic viewpoint of your whole application as a whole. So the essays you submitted to them, your resume, your GPA, your SAT score. Um, Because I know we've interviewed like TC and J where like a lot of times these kids are so fantastic and there's just so many great things about all of them that we are having to get down to like the nitty gritty details of, of small little things. And so they are really looking at, I think, a holistic viewpoint of everything and everything will come into consideration. Yeah, I had a student, it was really interesting. So this was for Penn State. And I remember the parent was like, you know, my kid needs to be the top 1% of interviewers. And I was like, I mean, that's kind of subjective, but okay, we can definitely try. So he was definitely really good. And, you know, he, he has a likable personality already, right? That really is half the battle. Sometimes they understand you don't need to know everything. They just want to see that you're passionate, but really, if you're not able to communicate that or like, you know, be personable, that can actually work against you. So his interviewer, like he told me, he was like, I rock that interview. And the interviewer actually told me um, that he really hopes that he sees me in this program next year. Right. And I was like, okay, that's it. Like that, that has to be like, he's going to say the best things about you and you're a hundred percent going to get in. Right. And that wasn't true. So he got rejected. And I was kind of shocked because I was like, you don't always get that comment where they say something like that. Like, I hope that I see you next year. And so I always get the question, like, you know, if I do really well in the interview, like, is that it? Like, 
that like we kind of jumped through all the hurdles like we already made it pass through kind of we're like the top 10% that they're interviewing is this it and I'm like no because they're still going to look at a lot of different factors right location is going to be one of them um your background is going to be one of them your activities is going to be one of them your interview is just more of a likability test right I feel like it can only hurt you and yeah sometimes I feel like it can really, really help you, but I feel like those exceptions are more rare. And something I think you kind of talked about too, the background, it could come down to honestly, like gender, you could be, they could only have 10 seats. They can't all be 10 guys. Like that's just not how, you know, BSMD program or man, I guess I should say, um, you know, 10 males because they want to have a balanced class. They want to have, you know, obviously females in there too. We want to have different races. Mm -hmm. So those things, all come into consideration too. So you could have been, you know, the sixth best, best person, but they only wanted to accept, you know, four males or whatever it might be. So those kind of things that just aren't in your control are, are a big factor too. I think location is a big, a big deal as well. You know, they want, if they're accepting you, they want a really high chance of you going. Um, and I know we've discussed prior in the past, you know, sometimes students can be too good almost for a school because they're assuming, you know, you're, you're a top grade A student. You're probably going to get into other programs. You live across the country. Why are you going to come to this small school in rural Pennsylvania or, or rural upstate New York? You know, the odds of that happening um, are kind of maybe rare um, unless there's a reason or a family tie or something like that. Um, and I also feel like sometimes, you know, the interviewers only get to see so many students. So not every single interviewer or everyone on the committee is going to see every student. So typically they'll come together um, and then kind of give their outliers or their, their top, you know, however many students that they would recommend. And then I was also, you know, it got me thinking about, I did an interview with SUNY Polytech and for their program, they actually send students to upstate medicals program who they will then interview. So they send their recommendations for interview. So I'm not sure in that case, I don't believe it then goes back down to SUNY Polytech. I think that for them, it would be the deciding factor of what Upstate decides. Um, but I think it just depends on the program and the inner workings of their admissions committee. Yeah, you're exactly right. Like SUNY Upstate ultimately has like the deciding factor. So SUNY Polytechnic could absolutely love you. Um, mm-hmm. One of the FJMS like feeder schools could absolutely love you, but and you could have rocked that first interview, but ultimately it's what you presented to MJMS in their interview or SUNY Upstate in their interview. So mm-hmm. there are just so many different factors going on. I know one really interesting thing, and I don't know if this works at like every school, and obviously my school is not like BSDO, but um, at my school, the old dean, when we like the very first day that we stepped into orientation, he came in literally for like 10 minutes only. <laughs> And he was like, I read all of your applications and I approved all of you to be here. So don't disappoint me. So I was like, that's actually really interesting too, because there's so many like different layers, right? You can have the admissions office reading it, but they're not going to be the same people who are going to be interviewing you. That's going to be faculty, right? Or med students. And then on top of that, it goes back to the admissions office. They get to decide. And then you have your dean who's going to sign off on everybody, right? So there's so many different layers that I feel like, you know, 
it's not really like one size fits all. There's so many things that I feel like we don't really know and each school does it so differently. So it's really interesting how the whole process works. And it's different, different at each school too. So even if you think you know how it works, if it's, you know, from five years ago or if it's from a different school, it could be different. Yeah. Um, should we go over a problem? Sure. Yeah. Wanna read the problem, Lindsay? Yeah, I can read it again. Okay. So here's a sample problem to review. Um, a child is brought in after a car accident is determined that a transfusion is required for life-saving measures. However, the family are Jehovah's Witnesses who do not believe in blood transfusions due to religious beliefs. How do you handle the situation? All right, do you want me to jump in and, and give my answer? Yeah. Um, so if I, if I was a student, I, and I was answering that question, the first thing that I would say is we need to speak to the family and communicate with them first. You know, you're not going to make any decisions. You're not going to, um, you know, I think a lot of students get caught up. We mentioned earlier when those words and the first, one of the first words was a life saving or life threatening. And I think a lot of times the students are in a panic mode and they just think I have to, you know, do either do it or don't do it. And they don't really kind of talk about that gray area of the in-between the doing or the don't doing and in the moment specifically what is happening, um, like the logistics of things. So um, speaking to the family, um, informing the family, giving them as much information as you can. Um, I think that would be kind of the, the number one thing to focus on there. This is a good one too, because it brings up kind of what we were talking about before about like what you know and what you don't know. And they might be thinking about, okay, what I know about Jehovah's Witness, like what I'm allowed to do. And they would, I would think likely get caught up, especially a student who hasn't maybe gone through a training process, get caught up thinking about what does this blood transfusion even mean? Like, how can I respond to it? And so they might avoid kind of what the question is ask, actually asking about because they're thinking, okay, do I need to know about children and like how they get treated? Do I need to know about like Jehovah's Witness and like about their blood transfusions and be thinking about those types of things rather than what, what this question is potentially ask, actually asking, which I'm sure Dolly yeah. will go into greater detail about. I also <laughs> think they're thinking of, you know, you're saying emergent, like, is this a procedure that happens immediately, like upon admittance, or is this something that can wait you know, is the family there? Can they have a conversation? But I don't think that they, you know, taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture. And I always kind of say the logistics of it as well. Um, too. Yeah. So I've seen so many different like responses this year. <laughs> and it's kind of funny because they're all like a little bit different. Like I have some people who read like my one sheeter and they're like, obviously this is a child and, you know, forget what the parents say. Like I have to save their life. And I'm like, okay, is there anything else to your answer? They're like, well, that's the right thing to do. Right. Like I read it on your sheet. I'm like, I mean, yes. Like one of the things I always tell people is like, you can say all the right things and still be wrong, or you could still know nothing and still be right. Right. And MMI is 
all about that. You can totally know nothing about how to save this patient, but still answer it correctly, right? And that's kind of one of the other mistakes that I don't think we covered yet is a lot of people don't realize that, that you don't have to always bring up just the medical stuff, right? If to answer the question properly, right? No med schools, whether you're BSMD or um, just traditional med school is ever going to ask you what the protocols are, right? Ethically, like the social stuff, sure. They could ask you what a, a potential uh, protocol would be, but they're never going to ask you like, what is the treatment for this patient, right? And you have to say, oh, I'm going to give the transfusion because of, you know, they're a minor and whatever. That's kind of beyond the scope of what they're looking for. Um, and I even have med students get this wrong too. So like med students who like will train with me, um, it's really funny because they're totally in boards mode. So they're like, well, obviously we save the child. And I'm like, but what did you forget? And they're like, no, like that's the law. I'm like, right, that's the law on the boards. Like we have to know that for boards, but how about at the BSMD level or the med school level before you get to med school, right? And so it's, again, really interesting to see that, you know, even med students like struggle with this question. And um, I do have a lot of people who can't really get past, like you said, that life-saving measure or the child, but the question really is asking about cultural barriers, right? And this question pops up in a lot of different blogs, um, a lot of like I don't know, a lot of resources, like people will come and tell me like, I saw this question and I didn't really know how to answer it. And I don't think people think that far about the cultural aspect. And, you know, what do we say that MMI tests, right? It tests how you communicate with patients. Can you understand different things? Can you work in a team, right? Can you be open-minded? And this is totally that question. Can you be open-minded? Can you understand where these people are coming from, right? Just because they're Jehovah's Witness doesn't actually mean that they're not going to get the blood transfusion, right? There are some questions, so there's variations of this question where it can say the family does not want blood transfusions, but the way I wrote this question doesn't indicate that. And a lot of my students will automatically jump to that. So I'm like, where did the family decide in the question? And they're like, oh, I guess it's not there. And I'm like, right, so what did I say earlier? You can't assume, right? If the question doesn't state it, you can't assume that. And one other thing I feel like people miss is they don't talk about the ethical problem, right? Which we already indicated was the cultural barrier. So once you identify this is a cultural barrier, you don't just go straight into how you talk about it. You have to elaborate why is a cultural barrier important, right? It disconnects the physician from the patient. And we have to be understanding of what the patient is going through, right? And there's a lot of different factors, not just clinically, but socially as well. And so if we do this, there's different implications, right? I'm like, what if you give this, you know, kid a blood transfusion? And I guess for Jehovah's Witness, they don't believe in blood transfusions because they think that they can't get into heaven. And so I was like, can you imagine you're six years old, you didn't do anything wrong. And they're like, well, sorry, you know, Joe, you're never going to get into heaven because you got into an accident and we gave you a blood transfusion. 
I'm like, that's going to cause a lot of mental health issues like down the line, right? And so when you look at a question, you have to think really broadly and take the time to understand the other person's perspective and understand why they believe that, right, before making your decision. In short, there's a lot of things for kids to think about as they're going on. <laughs> it's not black and white is is why I think kids will struggle is because they want to have one one mm -hmm. answer and that's it. But there's so many different factors to think about and so many different like variables that in this two to three sentence on prom, we're not going to get. And so not making assumptions, thinking about those different scenarios, those are all kind of key to not jumping to conclusions. Yeah, I always pick like the harder question. So even though you won't see this at like a BSMD level, they could totally ask it at a traditional med school level, right? But there's so many different layers within the question. So that's why I like using this question because it really forces people to think and see things. And it's really nice because then sometimes people will come back and will do like their actual mock interview and they're like, I caught myself like making assumptions. And then I was like, or thinking about like the medical aspect. And I was like, wait, I don't need to know that. And I'm like, good, <laughs> the training did something. Always the hope. Yeah. <laughs> and they listen, they listen too. And I think that when we were going back, like kind of full circling it back to something we talked about before about how to prepare and like how to do these, it's not just doing as many different practice scenarios as possible, but it's like going back and actually doing them out loud and doing it maybe with someone else who's qualified to help you. And if not that, then at very minimum, like recording yourself, going back and listening to it and like thinking, did you fall into like that fallacy of making assumptions of not considering multiple things, critically thinking about what you did wrong to hopefully improve for the future. Yeah. It's kind of like, like how you should study for like the SAT or the MCAT, right? Like you have to figure out what your weak spots are and then fix them. And I mean, you can, you can read a thousand MMI questions and read all the explanations, but if you never figure out how you're approaching them wrong, you know, you're going to butcher all of them. Like in my sessions, I only go through three questions, right? So why do people come back all of a sudden better in two days? It's because they finally understood what they were getting wrong. And now they're able to apply it to any scenario, right? It sucks to think about what you did wrong and to like actually critically think about <laughs> what you did wrong. Like that's the worst part. Like they're doing the scenarios is the, and you know, relatively easy part, but it's figuring out where you're going wrong. That I mean, in life in general, no one likes to do, but it's so important, especially for MMI, for SAT, for MCAT, for everything. Yeah, absolutely. 